Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning, once again to the Gospel according to Mark, where we are going to be looking again together at the first eight verses of chapter 1. That's Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and you can find that passage on page 980 in your pew Bibles. Last week, we began to just scratch the surface of this wonderful, very Christ-exalting, really altogether powerful account of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the gospel according to Mark. And we know that much of what Mark records for us here is more than likely content that Mark himself heard and recorded from his time and travels with the Apostle Peter. In other words, Mark is retelling some of the content of the sermons that he undoubtedly heard the Apostle Peter himself preach, as well as recounting much of Peter's experience as one of the disciples who had spent so much of their time with Jesus Christ. Mark also would have been an eyewitness of at least some of what is mentioned here in this book. And beloved, I hope that we can, and indeed that we have, considered some of the weight of this at least somewhat peculiar opening to Mark's gospel account. And I say peculiar not because the content of what he is saying, but because really it is quite different from what we read in any of the other gospel accounts. For instance, in both Matthew and Luke, they begin with the true beginnings of the life of the God-man, that is, the life of Jesus Christ. We find recorded in those books, bearing their authors' names, both the genealogies as well as the actual birth narratives of Jesus Christ in the opening chapters of their respective accounts. John 2 deals with true beginnings. He goes all the way back to eternity past, back to pre-creation, and he tells us that in the beginning the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. However, here in Mark, though he rightly speaks of beginnings, he is speaking of a different beginning. His narrative picks up at the outset of the ministry of the grown man, Jesus Christ. Mark opens this account with those words that we spent all of our time considering last week. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And beloved, I hope that you were able to spend some time on your own this past week considering truly what a mouthful that Mark gives us here with that little opening. If you have not, then perhaps I can convince you to do that in the week ahead. This morning, I want you to consider the timing and what it is that Mark is actually attempting here under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God himself to convey to both this original audience of this letter and to us as well. Place yourselves, if you will, in the shoes, probably more likely the sandals, 
of this original audience. Mark intended for this account to be read aloud to the people of God. It's a wonderful way to consider this. Do you ever listen to the Word of God that way? Do you ever read it together out loud as a family? Do you ever listen? Uh, if, if, if you approach me after the service, I'll give, I'll give you a great app uh, if you want to listen on your phone to an audio Bible. I've found one that I use every day of my life and that I've really come to love. But we need to do it. We need to listen. We need to hear the Word of God. We need to read it aloud. I want you to to think and to place yourself for just a moment in that original audience that hears this letter. To most who are in Israel at this time, they would have been hearing this and considering it after these these events had taken place. It would have seemed to them as though they, the people of God, had experienced and were living, indeed living with the reality of heaven being closed and God having cut them off from His favor. Right? God had been silent. Malachi would have been the last of the prophets of God to have been heard from in the last 400 years. The temple itself had been silent. God's prophets were no longer speaking that oft-repeated refrain heard so often in their storied history as God's chosen people. Thus saith the Lord. Silence. Israel was once again in the all-too-familiar position of being an occupied nation. Assyria, Babylon, and now Rome. Roman troops were everywhere. They were in Jerusalem. They were even near the temple of God. There they were keeping a close eye on things. Even as Mark is writing this down, quite possibly just shortly after the emperor Nero had ordered the apostle Peter killed. Many believe by crucifixion, though it's said that Peter asked to be crucified upside down because of his own unworthiness to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Christians and others in the nation of Israel were suffering, very real suffering under the cruel hands of the Romans. Their own leader, Herod Antipas, was but a lackey of Rome and seemed really to care less about his people or their plight. The religious leaders that made up the Sanhedrin, the religious and spiritual leaders of Israel, were themselves deeply divided and separated by no small amount of conflict. The Sadducees, who by the way would probably have been considered to have been the theological liberals of their day, they too were loyalists to Rome. The Pharisees had of course become bogged down in their own self-imposed systems of legalistic formulations of what it took to actually please God. They had buried the law of God while they chased after their own moralistic codes and traditions in order to save themselves, to excuse themselves, even to define themselves and others by. There were other weird little sects that had arrived upon the scene like the Essenes who, though they had the biblical knowledge and wherewithal to know that the Messiah was coming. 
had somehow missed the mark of authentic biblical religion entirely after that. It was a chaotic, dangerous, troubling, and uncertain time for the people of Israel. The leaders of the nation had become patsies of their conquerors. The religious leaders were so far removed from the actual content of God's word as to be almost unrecognizable. And God himself had been silent. Silent for 400 years. And everyone was either forgetting God altogether or they were hoping, waiting, anticipating that something was about to or rather that something had to happen. And then came, according to Mark, John the Baptist. And he was outside of Jerusalem in the wilderness where the Messiah would come. And so the people were making the trek out there to see what was going on, to see what it was all about. And that's where we pick up in this opening chapter of Mark this morning. Mark is writing this account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he moves right past his birth. He moves right past his childhood with Mary and Joseph. He moves right past even his time in the temple. He does not spend any time whatsoever on the genealogies. But beloved, Mark has something that he needs to say. You understand, there is an urgency in this account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Mark jumps right in and he begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He takes those who so desperately need the comfort of the gospel on a little trip through prophecy, a little trip through the promises of God to understand exactly what is taking place in redemptive history out there in the wilderness as the people of Israel begin to leave the comfort of the city in droves in order to see and to try and come to grips with this strange man called John the Baptist. And beloved, we need to feel the weight of this situation. And we need to understand these words as Mark begins to speak of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of a, of a promise kept, the power of a hope fulfilled. The power of having the shadows brought into the glorious reality of their substance. Who casts his shadow back throughout redemptive history. And revealed the justice, the compassion, the mercy, the grace. And the power of the God who never fails to deliver upon his word. So I'd like for you to take your Bibles and follow along with me now as I read once again the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, through the words of Mark 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of our Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us clarity, Father, as we look to these things, that we would understand these things in a way that it transforms who we are and what we do. Father, we pray all of it for the glory of your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the first questions that naturally arises from this somewhat peculiar opening of Mark's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, of course, why does Mark start here? Mark opens with the powerful revelation that the first thing that anyone who approaches the content of this book must know is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the hope and the consolation of Israel. Everything that we will encounter together in this book absolutely hinges upon that truth. Beloved, we have to see it. We cannot possibly consider something like the miracles that Jesus will perform in this book without this opening statement being absolutely, undeniably true. You understand why I would say that? You know, one of my favorite preachers that is still preaching on a regular basis and that I love to listen to or to read through his sermons is a a Welsh pastor by the name of Jeff Thomas. And he makes the point in his introductory sermon into this book that no one would ever listen to a Plato or to a Socrates who sawed pretty women in half or who pulled rabbits out of top hats. And I hope you see his point. The miracles of Jesus Christ do not stand somehow alone or apart from his person and his work. No one comes to Jesus because he is known to be an able magician, skilled in the black arts or the deception of illusion. No, no, miracles simply point to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in flesh to save his people 
from the just deserts of their sin. He is the Messiah who came to reconcile the people of God to the Father once and for all of those for whom he came to die. That's why Mark is writing this all down. That's why Mark is eager to get to the point behind his purpose. He wants for all of those who are listening to know that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if we can even begin to wrap our minds around that very truth, if we can truly embrace that truth by faith, then what will follow will most definitely be music to our ears. So we can see why Mark would begin here. Because this Jesus, who this book is all about, this Jesus whose gospel is the power of God unto salvation, is the very one whom God spoke of in times past through the mouths of the prophets. This Jesus is the fulfillment of the holy law and the promises of God. And so Mark begins and he quotes the prophet Isaiah directly. He also quotes Malachi here. In Isaiah 40 verse 3 we read, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And that verse is preceded and sort of mashed together here with Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way. Before me. So we need to see here right away that Mark is making the point that the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is not new. He goes all the way back to the prophets and he says, Look, this is what was going on in the wilderness with this strange man, John the Baptist. He is the promised messenger of Almighty God. He is the forerunner of the Christ from the prophecies of God's holy word. He is the herald of the coming king. He's like the herald that the Pharaoh appointed to serve by running before Joseph's chariot crying out, Bow the knee, bow the knee. The purpose of the herald was to proclaim the arrival of the king or the dignitary. And that is exactly what John is doing here. He's saying, repent, be washed, be baptized because the king is coming here. And the people were flocking to him to hear that message. And beloved, I want to come back to that in just a moment. But first... I do want to clear up something that I think that far too many preachers make far too much about. Again, looking to Scripture to understand what may seem, at least at first, to be a little bit hazy. Far too much is made of the fact that John wore a garment of camel's hair or that he wore a belt made of some dead animal's hide. Far too much is made of his peculiar diet. 
I'm certain that somewhere there's some weird little group of Christians who are feeling far superior to all of their peers because they have heeded the word of God and somehow restricted their diet to only consist of insect protein and wild honey. You smile, but you know I'm right. It probably exists. I sincerely hope that it's not any of you. (laughs) If you do, I want to talk to you after the service. But you know it exists. It's out there. And the reason that it exists is because we have a real tendency in modern-day evangelicalism to constantly miss the proverbial forest for the trees whenever we seek to expound upon the Word of God. Look, the people were not flocking to John the Baptist because they felt that maybe he was some kind of weird fashion-forward trendsetter. They did not leave the comfort and the convenience of the city to go out into the desert wilderness and be shocked and awed by this wild new preacher's clothing or his diet. Why did they go? Because they knew something was happening. The question remains, why then did John wear and eat such strange things? Maybe you've accepted that he simply did it because he was poor, that he was impoverished, that this clothing and this diet were were the clothing and diet of folks who were not well enough off to eat and wear decent things. Let me remind you of who John was. He was the son of prophecy to one of the priests of God who served in the temple. And you understand that John's father, Zechariah, was not just an ordinary priest. He was the one who had been chosen to enter into the temple and to burn incense before the Lord. That's when the angel of the Lord visited him and told him about his son, whose name was to be called John. His mother was a direct descendant of Aaron the great high priest of Israel. John was not the son of poverty that some have led us to believe. He was born of enough means to be properly clothed and to eat a decent meal. So why the appearance then? Well, some have pointed out that it must be because of humility that he appeared to be so strange. There's probably some truth in that. However, I do not think that Mark is pointing it out to us here so that we could be astounded by the humility of John the Baptist. Then why? Turn with me just briefly to 2 Kings, the first chapter. And in this first chapter, we find out that after the death of Ahab, Moab rebels. And Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice work of an upper chamber in his palace, and he was now on his deathbed from the wounds that he had sustained as a direct result of that fall. And so he sends messengers to consult and to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, as to whether or not he was going to pull through these injuries. And an angel comes to Elijah and the angel tells him to go and to meet these messengers and rebuke them for foolishly inquiring of a God who was no God, the God of Ekron. And he tells them that because of their collective foolishness that the king would most certainly die. 
So they go back and they give Elijah's message to Ahaziah. And the very first thing, the very first question out of the king's mouth is this. Tell me, what did this man look like? What did he look like? And their description of him is there in verse 8. They answered him. He wore a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. And the king, King Ahaziah, on his deathbed with that very brief, nondescript description said, It is Elijah, the Tishbite. Now turn with me quickly to the 11th chapter of Matthew. Chapter 11 of Matthew, Jesus has just finished commanding and sending out his disciples, and he himself departed to go out into the cities to preach and teach. And the disciples of John had been sent to Jesus by John, who, though in prison, had heard of the miraculous things that were being done by Jesus. And so he sent his disciples to Jesus to inquire as to whether or not he was actually the long-awaited Messiah. And Jesus says to them, Go and tell John what you see. And he describes, of course, some of the miraculous things that were being done. He says, The blind now see. And the deaf now hear. The lame now walk. The dead are being raised to life. And so these men leave quite satisfied with who he is, and they go back to tell John. And then beginning in verse 7 of chapter 11, Jesus turns to the multitude, and he says this concerning John the Baptist. He asks them, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft garments are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, There has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now we know, of course, that he was not merely the reincarnation of Elijah. John himself denied as much. Rather, he was the one who was to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah and make way for the king of kings. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, beloved, I know that's a lot of information to simply tell you this. Mark knows His Bible. He knows his Bible. 
He knows the scriptures and Mark sees the great signal flare of all of redemptive history in this man that is before us this morning, John the Baptist. And he knows exactly what his arrival in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem meant. Do you see? He says to them, look, John did not go to the temple and offer up the blood of bulls and goats for the people of God like his father before him had. No, what he actually did is a little bit outrageous, isn't it? Have you ever thought about it? John went out into the wilderness and he preached on the banks of the Jordan River and he called on the people not to have him offer sacrifices for them, as a priest of God, though he certainly had the bloodline to do so. He did not point the people coming to him towards the morality exemplified in the vain traditions of the Pharisees. He did not tell the people that if they followed the formula exactly right, that God would be obligated to bless them. His job was not to build the largest and the hippest church in Jerusalem where all of the popular Christian cools could sort of hang out together and sip designer coffee and talk about microbrews. What did he do? He did what he came to do. He did exactly what he had been ordained by Almighty God to do. He said, what you need to do is be sorry for your sin. You understand? He said, forget the blood of bulls and goats. You have missed the purpose behind all of the bloodshed. You think that God simply wants you to go through the motions, that God desires your observance of the laws and the feast days, that God is somehow pleased with your empty lip service. No. God will have your heart. You must look to the law and find not your comfort there, but your reason to fall on your face before God and to long to be covered in the blood of King Jesus. Make way for the King because He has arrived. Make way for the gift of eternal life united to your king and his life, his death, his resurrection by faith. He's here. John tells them, I'm not worthy to be even less than his slave. I'm not worthy to remove his dirty sandals and to clean his filthy feet. Be sorry for your sin and look at Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God. You understand? Mark wants you to see that John was all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He was using baptism, something really at the time associated mostly with Gentiles who became Jews. They were circumcised and then baptized. They were ceremonially washed in water. And he's looking at the people of God, he's looking at the Jewish people, and he's saying to them, the time for masquerading is over. The time for simply going through the motions has passed. 
The time for expecting peace with God from mere externals is gone. You must actually see your sin in the eyes of the law. You must be undone in order that you can cling to the perfect, precious righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Even John's baptism was insufficient for salvation. He says, look, this is water. The one who is on his way will baptize you with his very spirit. You will see him for who he is. You will live grateful for what he is and for what he and his mercy has done. Beloved, the parallels hardly need to even be drawn, do they? The time for the prophets and the law was until John. Then John looked at the people of God and he pointed them away from himself towards the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the ambassador of King Jesus. He lived, he existed simply to marshal in the ministry of Jesus Christ, the hope of all of Israel. Beloved, how we still need this today. We're living in a day when the goal of so many preachers is simply to promote themselves. To promote their books. To promote their church, their way, their plan, their example. Their fame, their fortune. Not John. John said, look, it's all about Jesus. It's about his person, his work, his kingdom. In fact, I need to decrease And he's going to increase. You need sorrow for your sin. And you desperately need his perfection to cover it. You need what he is and what he has. And it begins by seeing the law of God for what it is. It points you to your own lack of righteousness. Not your vast storehouse of close enough. points you towards the offense that your sin is against a perfectly holy God. It drives you to the cross where King Jesus truly paid it all. It lifts your head to see His resurrection, to see His ascension to the right hand of the Father where we are told He lives to intercede for you. And so Mark puts pen to paper and he says, this is when it all came together. The silence of God meets his providence with one final prophet who though different from all the prophets before before him, like them, he too existed to point the people of God to their only hope. Their only comfort in life and in death. Their rock of assurance. The true substance of their faith. The culmination of every single promise of God. The Lord Jesus Christ. So Mark wastes no time getting to the point that it's all about Jesus. Beloved, I want to ask you, do you believe that this morning? I warned you at the outset of this series last week that if we are really going to dig into the gospel according to Mark, we had better be prepared to be confronted with a true picture of Jesus Christ and his kingdom 
that is in no way dependent upon the way in which you feel about it. It's the truth. Not your feelings about the truth that matter. And so I ask you again, do you know this Jesus? The one that John existed simply in order to announce. The one whom all the prophets pointed the world towards. The one who came as the fulfillment of the law and who seals the deal on the faithfulness of Almighty God. Or are you content with a Jesus who is so much less? John certainly did not preach a Jesus who would make you cool or comfortable. In fact, this Jesus speaks to his people away from everyone else in the wilderness. This Jesus and his gospel will bring you where you would not ever go on your own. He will take you, he will take from you that which you do not ever want to let go of. He will give you an identity that you would and could never come up with on your own. This Jesus and his gospel will also give to you what quite simply stated, you cannot live without. Which Jesus do you swear your allegiance to this morning? This Jesus? The Jesus here in Mark's account of the gospel? He's King Jesus. And he bids you to come. He bids you to come and taste of his banqueting table. He bids you to come and find forgiveness that only those who are sorry for their sin will ever truly taste. He bids you to come and find in him all that you could ever need to have life and peace and comfort and joy in both life and in death. He bids you to come And to see what John and all the prophets before him did not see. The triumphant, risen, ascended Savior sitting upon his throne. Amen? Let's pray.